Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 373rd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Ben Hakama. Ben is the founder of Illuminate Wealth Management, an RA based in Barrington, Illinois, that oversees $100 million in assets under management for 55 client households. What's unique about Ben, though, is that he spent 13 years successfully working his way up the career track at a growing advisory firm, starting as an intern and eventually making partner, only to realize within 18 months that it wasn't a good culture fit for him and that he'd need to leave but then figured out how to take on passive equity investors in a new startup RA who helped finance his ability to buy out a portion of his client base from the firm he was leaving in order to build the business he really wanted to build. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Ben leveraged some of his personal relationships to find two passive investors who were willing to give him money in exchange for a 25% stake in his new RAA and the 16 existing clients he'd be buying out from his prior firm. How through developing a structured annual client service calendar, guiding their offerings month to month throughout a given year, and a fee schedule structure on a client's net worth, Ben has been able to attract prospects and rapidly grow his client base from $16 million to $100 million in just the past three years. And how Ben's successful growth phase led him to do a second round of capital with a wider base of 13 investors, where he sold another 10% of his equity in order to further pay down his debts incurred in the original RIA transition and launch. We just talked about Ben's journey from a three-summer-long internship at his first firm to being offered an opportunity to take over an acquired firm and its client base in Chicago to being asked to become part of the ownership team, how Ben then realized that his entrepreneurial goals and willingness to take risks on new ideas were not well aligned with the desires of the other owners and that staying in an environment that had admittedly been very successful for over 30 years would still likely leave him bored and disengaged. And how Ben found that he needed to spend time working with a therapist to manage the grieving process that came from realizing that he'd need to sever business relationships he'd spent more than a decade building. And be starting to listen to the end, where Ben shares how he took it upon himself to find his own advisor study group of peers that ultimately became his most valuable support asset through a decade of transitions. Ben's discovery that despite his imposter syndrome through several shifts in his career, that being willing to ask the questions that you fear might be dumb questions and are afraid to ask can really help open doors and bring growth opportunities to light earlier. And how Ben has now transitioned from having been the intern who grew all the way to advisor and then partner to trying to create a work environment that affords a safe space for younger, newer advisors to similarly get the opportunity to grow and develop as he did early in his career. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Ben Hakama. Welcome, Ben Hakama, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Michael, thanks for having me on. I, I really appreciate you joining us. And I'm excited for today's conversation around what I think is a, a different kind of take and approach to having an advisory firm with some outside investors, passive investors. The the industry has been in this trend over the past like five to seven years in particular of taking on outside investors. We have PE firms that buy majority stakes, then put a lot of cash in to, to try to power the growth of organic or inorganic acquisitions. We have some 
different sets of investors that more of the family office type that buy minority stakes of advisory firms. So they just want to participate in the dividend cash flows or like a dividend income strategy for a family office to own some pieces of some RIAs. But you've come to this from a a very different perspective, which is not after I've been 20, 30 years into the firm and built it to a certain size, do I want to partially liquidate my shares or take on outside capital? You actually did this in the process of launching the firm. And you know, I used to get questions years ago around, is it possible to get capital and take on investors when you launch an advisory firm, the way that it is in some other industries, certain manufacturing industries, like you can go to the bank and get a loan to buy the factory equipment you need to get started. It's a little bit different than the advisory world. We're not buying real estate or equipment. It's a people business and a service business, but there's still the overhead of our lives that we have to maintain while we're launching a firm. And so I know you you have gone down this road of what it looks like when you're trying to launch a firm and I guess not only take on passive investors, but then re-up with passive investors a couple of years later. And so it just I'm looking forward to the conversation of what that looks like and even just understanding how you came to that as an approach in the first place when you were launching. Absolutely. I think there's, I don't like to do things just the way it's always been done. That's part of why I'm an entrepreneur. And I, I would definitely say that looking around to whether it's other industries in tech or outside of traditional RAA space on how things have launched and what you do, definitely looked to see what might make sense. And I think hearing the story at the beginning where I came from and then how a previous partnership didn't work that well and what I learned from that process really led to Illuminate as we have it and and that approach to getting new in passive investors. So I, I think so we have context. As if you noted, it's hard to it's hard to talk about launching the firm that you launched and taking on some investors without understanding the the backstory that led up to the point that you were launching, because this wasn't just a I'm brand new to the industry, fresh out of college, raising capital to to start my firm. There there was other stuff you were doing in the industry for some time before you got to that point. Why don't you start by taking us back to the beginning when you did come into the industry and get started as a financial advisor and your journey through prior stages of the industry before we got to the point of, okay, it's it's time to launch a firm and take on some investors to do it. Absolutely. So I I like to say that I didn't really pick financial planning. I just fell into it and learned that I loved it and loved working with clients. Going back to even high school, I was good at math and science, didn't know what I wanted to do, looked to actually went to a career counselor and they said, oh, you should be an entrepreneur. No matter what the industry is, you should be an entrepreneur. So I looked around and I said, who do I know? And I honestly didn't know that many entrepreneurs or business owners, but I'm a lot like my dad. I look up to my dad and he was a surgeon who had his own practice. And so I said, oh, maybe that's the route. Let's go pre-med with business focus. I'll have my own practice. So I get to do the science-y thing and help people, but also run a business or, or make some decisions. And so that was my plan for our, my freshman year of, of college. And then I went to the operating room with my dad. And I realized really quickly <laughs> that I did not want to be a surgeon and I didn't want to be a doctor. That was not where my future lied. And so... so 
out of curiosity, it's like, what was the deal killer? We're, we're in the operating room, and this was a procedure where he had to break somebody's jaw and then reposition it and screw it in place. And there was nothing appealing about that process in my mind of cutting someone open. And it's not that I fainted at the sight of blood or anything like that, but okay. it was, I could not imagine doing that a single day of my life. And, and so I talked to my dad about that after that experience. And he said, well, if I wasn't in medicine, I would be a personal financial advisor. Why don't you meet with my advisor? And he can tell you about the industry. He can tell you about what that looks like. And so that's what I did. And home for winter break, freshman year of college, and go in to the office and meet his advisor who had founded the firm 25, 30 years before, independent RIA, a big member of NAPFA. And turns out that our meeting I had with him was actually an interview and I didn't know it. I was just curious and asking questions because I literally had no idea what this even was. And at the end of that conversation, I got an internship. (laughs) And I believe I was their first intern that they had. And it was a spur of the moment decision by the founder who just, it just, happened and I didn't plan it. I didn't say this is really the industry. When you're offered a job and you're a freshman in college, you say yes. <laughs> Let's uh-huh, get it. Uh-huh. And so I did no research beforehand other than what I could find on online or talking, why did, dad, why'd you pick here? Why, why did you guys pick to go here? And that internship turned into one summer, two summer, three summers after my junior year, I actually got engaged to be married, and my wife was not from the same area. This was in Indianapolis. And I said, I can start working here full-time, but knowing I'm going to get married, probably have kids, I'm eventually going to have to move probably closer to my wife's family and just wanted to be upfront, honest with them. And then two two months later, I get a call, and they'd offer me a full-time job in, in the office, but I got a call, and they said, how would you like to move right away. There's a firm that we've known for years that is looking, has a retiring advisor and we're going to buy it and have you take over. How does that sound? (laughs) Again, that was like, that was in Indianapolis. So they, so the main firm is in Indianapolis and uh, my wife's in the Chicago area. And and so it's about four hour drive difference, but uh, it was in Chicago. So they acquired an Illinois office. And I, the day I graduated college is the day they signed the papers. And I never actually worked full-time in the main office in Indianapolis. Uh, I moved to Chicago and started to work transitioning from another advisor. All right. So that's nice opportunity. And so just literally like you were the advisor that was going to be taking over the clients of this advisory firm that had been acquired? Was it you and another advisor in a team or literally like you were the guy who was going to take these over? There was five years that I worked with that retiring advisor and got to know him very well. And he trained me day to day and I quickly took the CFP test and became a financial planner and all of those steps. And then at the five year, about the five-year mark, he retired. His name was Gary, and he comes up later in the story. <laughs> Gary retired and transitioned all of his clients to me at that point. Oh, you made a very good impression in your internship. Well done, sir. <laughs> but talk about imposter syndrome at that point. I remember the day Gary was officially gone and had retired, and we still had monthly lunches and stayed in contact. But that's a big change is 
at, at that point. 27 so, taking over the Illinois office. So help us understand a little bit more just the firm, like the that Chicago office. What kind of clients was it? How big was the, the practice? What had you gotten yourself into at this point? <laughs> Good questions. We had one other, um, whether it's a CSA or paraplanner, depending on on the role that was in the office with me. And then soon after Gary left, did hire a, another kind of junior advisor out of school to help out. So there's really three of us most of that time in that office. And I think we had about 80 clients that I was working with and probably, what would that be, about a 100 million AUM at that point. A lot of them had worked with Gary for 20, even 30 years at that point. And the biggest thing was when Gary trusted me and trusted the handoff, they were willing to give me a shot. And then having Gary around to help me through my mistakes and, and smooth over, I, I made a 24-year-old mistake. was nice to have. So talk to us a little bit more about how that transition worked. What was the approach? What did you do over that five-year window to get up to speed and make this transition go well? So one, one big thing, coming from a, a bigger firm, having the internship, I knew all the software, I knew everything on the way that we did it. So that first probably six months to a year was really about transitioning the old systems to the new and being the youngest person in the firm and more, honestly, more tech savvy just because of being more of a tech native, was able to help the two systems work and, and coordinate and go through and well, you're comparing getting, different getting Gary up to speed on whatever your CRM system was exactly versus what they were using and, and what were you guys using if you were um, so for instance CRM went from Juncture to Salesforce and I think the financial planning software it was both Money Guide Pro but set up in two very different ways and so transitioning. It, financial planning from one to another, given that I was as an intern doing a lot of the, the back office kind of financial planning analysis and, and running Money Guide Pro and things like that, it was easy for me to then step in and just take that off of Gary's plate and say, okay, I'm going to just put this client in the new system. I know how to do it from scratch better. Let's look at the old way that you did it and with our assumptions and things like that. Okay. So the first six months is let's just get acclimated to new systems. I'm assuming some portfolio management tool system differences as well. Two different systems and, and then as technology change changes, including my internship, I was at the, the firm for 13 years. And so I think we had three different portfolio management systems, ended up on, on Tamarack, but we're using other ones beforehand. So again, just making the systems integrated and then working through that. And from day one, literally my first day, I was in a client meeting with Gary. And I remember the, I think it was 10 pages of notes because I was literally transcribing everything Gary said because I wanted to know how he approached it. And I was just fascinated by his process versus what I had seen before. And that helped being in the meetings from day one when the clients knew why I was there is that eventually Gary was going to leave and eventually I would take over that relationship. How did Gary introduce you and introduce this dynamic? 
Gary definitely said we had an open house. The senior partners from the Indianapolis office came up and a lot of clients came and asked a lot of questions on how it would work. And obviously when I was introduced in that setting, I didn't know what I was doing and just was, I'll get to know you all better later. And didn't say all that much as a fresh 22-year-old with imposter syndrome, afraid of everyone finding out that I don't know what I'm doing. And the biggest thing Gary said was lean on. We're not just going to put Ben in a situation where he's on his own. Even when I retire, there's a whole team behind. We have a financial planning committee and investment committee and decisions are made across the firm, but this is your face. This is your relationship and spoke more as I got to know Gary, it spoke more on as a person and less about what I was able to do because we were able to leverage the resources of the whole firm. Interesting. So Gary's positioning was not just, this is Ben, you're all in on Ben now. It was, I've merged into a larger firm. It has more resources, a planning committee, an investment committee. It has Ben, who's going to be your awesome advisor that works and interfaces with you directly. But hey, it's more than Ben. There's a whole firm here. Absolutely. And it helps that they were the, the Gary and that firm, the founder, who was the guy that came at my desk every Friday during the internship. They were personal friends, had known each other for 30 years, 25, 30 years at that point. They were in a peer group together that they formed. And so they knew the way the businesses work. They knew the way that they advise clients. There was a lot of synergy there that made it not just we found a firm to sell to, but it was right. rather this is who we've intentionally chosen. And we didn't take the best price. We took the best firm to serve you. Right. Okay. So then talk to us how this evolves over five years, right? Out of the gate, it is you're simply sitting in on every meeting and furiously taking notes and then asking questions afterwards. And, and right. I guess Gary had time or made time to answer those questions and dig into that. Absolutely. I'm sure I was really annoying <laughs> with all my questions and a lot of them. I just didn't know what I didn't know. And so it was great to be in all those meetings, found the things, the more stuff that I did behind the scenes, the more confident I got in, whether it's the insurance analysis or the retirement projection, whatever it was that I was, had my hands on. And so over time, probably within the first year, I was presenting in the meeting a small topic. And then it grew from there to towards the end over that five years. There were a few times Gary even fell asleep in the meeting uh, because I, he had nothing to say. And I was presenting start to finish and he was just there to be the person to make sure there were no other questions I couldn't answer. So was there like a structured progression of... Uh, Year one, I'm doing the meetings. Year two, we're doing the meetings. Year three, you're doing the meetings. Was it was it set up at that level and structure, or did it just happen more organically? I would say every client had their own structure. So some clients, okay. we had a great relationship right away, and it was easy, and they were honestly the easier clients from a technical perspective, and that was nice, nice to happen. Uh, I, I remember the first time I had a meeting without Gary, and he had a family emergency. This is, I think, two years in. And he said, Ben, I think for this, if it was a different client that you didn't have a relationship with already, we'd reschedule. I think you could handle this. And 
I was terrified went into that meeting that at the end, I actually let them know that was my first meeting without Gary and asked for feedback. And thankfully they said, oh, we had no idea. This was the first time without Gary here. Keep going. So that helped the confidence a little bit. But again, depending on the client situation and the specific client relationship, how often we met with them, if they were local or was something more virtual, even at that point, each client had kind of their own process. And I do remember over time, we had maybe half the clients we said internally, I was the lead on and half the clients Gary was. And it just, it was a spreadsheet that we just continue to maintain as we updated after each client contact. So I have to ask, as I hear this, do we know if Gary really had a family emergency? I don't <laughs> know this, either. That's a great was this his way of, of, of pushing you out of the nest? <laughs> that I would not, I, I haven't asked him that, but... <laughs> that is a great question, and I would not be shocked if he intentionally made that happen. I will say, especially towards the end, there were a few clients that really hung on to Gary, and we would intentionally we we told them I was the lead. Gary was still around, and he was part time at that point. But we made sure that Gary was in the office the day that the client meeting was, and he would stop in. I would be stuck on a call and Gary would go in for 10 minutes and just talk to the client before I walked in. And that was all scripted. And more than anything, just to make sure that the client knew that Gary was still around, he knew what was going on. Even if he had nothing to do with preparing for that meeting, I gave him the agenda. (laughs) He knew what was going to happen. And that was enough to help those clients get over that line. How did compensation structure work through this? Yeah, good question. So until I was really until Gary had really stepped out and and I was the you know quote lead advisor for the majority of clients, I was salaried at that point. And then we did shift like we did for all of our advisors that based on the revenue managed was a, a percentage that was part of the compensation. Okay, and so that's the incentive for you to get there as as quickly as you reasonably can with the caveat that once you get there, you are on revenue-based compensation. So if you get there too quickly and it doesn't go well and you lose clients, you will also deal with the consequences of that. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. And I think the way that the transition happened, a big part of it, obviously, is Gary staying around for as long as he did. But I believe it's been a while, but I think the numbers, I think we had 97% retention over that five years of the clients that started were still there when I took over. Wow. That's an, that's an incredibly high number only because there's also just some natural client attrition that happens. People right. move, they get divorced, they die, stuff happens. So that's a phenomenally high five-year retention rate. Absolutely. And honestly, I can only think of a couple that left and one of them was a really dumb mistake that I made and didn't know what I didn't know. And it was entirely my fault at that point and had nothing to do with the transition. It was honestly, it was a trade error. And that's- I was going to ask what it was. What was the thing? It was a large trade error that looking back, maybe I even should have been fired for. But I think it's one of those expensive mistakes you learn from, and I'm never going to do that again. And that's part of hiring a 22-year-old who- you know, I think that probably I would have been 25 probably when that happened, but <laughs> you make mistakes. Well, what did you, what did you do? What did I do? Uh, I sold 
some securities that I should have and didn't buy the ones I told the client I was going to and didn't catch it for a long period of time as the market was up significantly. That'll do it. Yeah, absolutely. So was that a didn't take the right notes, didn't use the CRM system right in the follow through? What was the lesson learned? Absolutely. absolutely. It, It was honestly an overconfidence that I could keep things in my head and didn't have to follow the procedures that were in place to put the task in the CRM and follow up on it. And, oh, I've got this. It's in my head. It's a big number. I'm not going to forget that. Wrote it down on a piece of paper, misplaced the paper, didn't have the backups that I was supposed to do. Just and then didn't go back to the client to clarify, just moved forward because that's what we do sometimes is bullheaded young people. Absolutely. Yes. And it was, yeah, it was an outside account that I had to work with the client to get access to and all that. And it just didn't happen. Ouch. Ouch. Oh, you good, good, good lesson. Could learned, it less right? as, learn as early? Said, we'll never forget that again. Expensive lesson to learn, but definitely cements the point in your head. Absolutely, never going to happen again. So you get through the transition. So what happens next? What's the I don't know the state of Ben and the state of the firm at this point? Like you're five years in, you've been heir apparent to take over this client base that you've now taken over. They're now, quote unquote, your clients as a representative of the firm. You're getting paid a percentage of that revenue. Uh, I feel like there, there's probably like a reset with the whole relationship you've got with the firm at this point. Absolutely. Around the time that Gary left, it was it was maybe six months after the founder of the firm uh, also semi-retired, uh, was no longer leading client relationships, shifted his role a little bit, still involved from a advisory of the firm perspective, but not client at that point. And then there was a very clear internal succession. I think even at that point, I think even when I was an intern, there were the two other senior advisors and were already owners at that point. And so when the founder retired, it just, now we had two. And so about a year after that, I haven't lost clients. Gary's gone and it's still working. We don't have the people on my team quitting because I'm a bad boss or something like that. (laughs) With that, then it was the natural conversation of, okay, at some point, we want you to be a part of this ownership team. You manage a, a good portion of the revenue and are bringing in some new clients. A lot of it's from referrals at that point. And let's start talking about you buying in. And uh, step one of buying in with the long-term plan that 15 years from now, you're going to be the guy and we're going to retire at that point. So I'm struck in this context. So the conversation got initiated by the firm, not necessarily you coming in saying, I've taken over Gary, like I now I want to be a partner. They came to you and said, so you've taken over Gary, you have all these clients, you're helping to grow the business. Let's start talking about ownership team. Absolutely. I, at that time, felt so lucky through the whole process of getting the internship, finding the industry, having this awesome opportunity just presented to me without any work I did is is how I felt at the time. And so there was no way at that point that I felt I could reasonably ask to even have Mm -hmm. that conversation. It was so far away from 
where my mind was at. Cause I, again, I was still in the mindset of I'm about to get exposed. <laughs> You're still in some imposter syndrome world here. Absolutely. For sure. And so that even then as we move forward, that was really important in our conversations because I didn't know the questions to ask. So eventually I did buy in 10% uh, ownership uh, into the firm. And, and that again, was bought, I didn't, I didn't not, that wasn't a compensation thing. That was a, you have to buy and write a check arrangement. It was an internal financing over five years that I was uh, buying in. I was given access to the financials and things like that. And basically it was presented as here is what we internally value the firm at. So that's what you're buying in at. And it was a, a multiple of revenue at that point. Take a look at the P&Ls and let us know if that seems fair. And I was so afraid of asking too many questions that would expose my lack of knowledge that they would reconsider the offer that I said, if you think that's fair, I trust you. And it's, and I, and looking back, I want to make this really clear. I actually do think that was fair, (laughs) but I didn't fully understand what I was buying in at because I was afraid to ask the questions. Can I ask what did you buy in at and what are the questions you wish you asked in understanding it more? Yeah, both in my situation and other advisors that I've talked to that have had similar, I think there's kind of two sets of questions I really should have asked. Looking back, what I would ask instead would be things like, okay, how much of this is from new client revenue? How much of this is from increased wallet share? How much is from just market appreciation? The 2010s were great for the market. And so how much of that is just AUM fees going up? at that point. And then obviously I knew none of it was acquisitions, but understanding that makeup would have helped me understand then how much risk and potential upside financially that we were taking. So those are the questions I would have asked on on the valuation. And again, I don't think it would have changed the ending numbers, but um, I should have known more. Uh, And then also more importantly, and this really comes back, I should have asked more questions about the management responsibilities, how that was going to be divvied up. I heard uh, Tim Coaches talk about this at a conference in the spring, and he talked about the difference between equity and management responsibilities. And as an owner, he was speaking really to owners who were selling equity, that you can sell for the financial aspect, but still keep 100% management control. And you can structure it however you want. Just because someone's buying in doesn't mean they have any say in anything. And that makes complete sense. And I never thought about it. In my mind, I thought about it as I am now an owner. Therefore, I had a list of expectations of what I thought that meant and never expressed that, never talked about it. And Mm -hmm. that meant that there's a reason I'm not there anymore. And it's because we didn't address this all up front and and have expectations that were the same. Yeah, I find for... A lot of advisors and firms, particularly from the the younger advisor buying in perspective, there's this mindset of, I want to buy in and become a partner because then I'll have a seat at the decision table. And I hear some version of that like over and over again very frequently. Equity, ownership, and management are not the same thing. They can be aligned, and often they're aligned for some obvious reasons, but 
as firms grow, it's virtually guaranteed that doesn't happen because at some point you're a really big firm. You have like 50 partners and you don't want to actually have 50 person committees making decisions. Like you have to create management teams and other layers. But even in firms where numbers wise, you could have all the partners in the room making the decisions, ownership does not necessarily mean you get a say at the table for management decisions. It literally just means you own a piece of the equity and you have a legal right to the cash flows, the dividends, the profits. What the firm does with management is up to the firm's conversation for management. (laughs) Exactly. And again, I didn't know what I didn't know. Looking back, although I cared about the equity piece, that wasn't my motivation. My motivation was the honestly being an entrepreneur, going back to what the career counselor right. said, leading the business forward to the next stage. I was I, I had enough compensation just as an advisor. I didn't need the equity piece to f- make my financial my personal financial planning goals <laughs> met. Right. None of that was needed. It was great to have, but that's not why I wanted to do it. But because I didn't know and was afraid to even approach the subject, that led to 18 months later, I went to the, my two partners at the time and said, this isn't working for me. I'm, this isn't what I thought I was getting into. And I think we need to figure out what to do from here. And at that point, I was seriously considering even leaving at that and starting my own because I didn't know another way. And I was pleasantly surprised that my partners at the time said, hold on, (laughs) before you divorce us, let's see if we can make this work. And so we did have some of those discussions we should have had at the beginning and tried it out for about a year. So what, help us understand more, like what, what happened over that 18 month period, or I guess what didn't happen (laughs) over that 18 month period from what you were expecting that time window to to be and then what it turned out to be that was making you so unhappy? It's a great question. (laughs) I would say that the biggest frustration that I had is I am a guy with a lot of new ideas and I know most aren't going to (laughs) work, but I want to try them all so I know which ones are. And having an established firm that had been around for at least 30 years at that point, happy clients, there's, I agree, there's not a need to try all these new things that I want to try. But I felt that my strengths were not being utilized uh, in that context, because it was a lot of, we got happy clients, and we're doing well, and the numbers are growing, and we're profitable. Why are we trying? Why are we going to take the risk? And I I understand, and I'm sitting there as, well, I'm 28. (laughs) And if I'm looking at the firm, I'm looking ahead to eventually you guys are going to be gone. And the plan is for me to buy you out. I want to buy a firm I want to own at that point when I am in charge. (laughs) And so I think that was the biggest thing of just maybe different time horizons, different stages of life, different risk tolerances, and just different motivations. And, And again, none of that is wrong for anybody. I just don't think it was a good fit. Now, looking back. Yeah, it, it's funny to me. We talk about, we often talk about things like risk tolerance and time horizons, like quintessential to 
financial planning discussions with clients and determining appropriate portfolio allocations. But to me, it it really does show up in interesting ways in advisory firms as as well, right? Like you a scenario like the picture you're painting, right? You take a firm that's doing well, nicely profitable. Primary owners at this point probably make more than enough money to accomplish regular financial goals. As you said, like you you had enough to accomplish your goals from the income for the equity ownership. So never mind like owning the equity ownership as well. You can do like all those goals and add a zero and do like those goals with bigger numbers. So when that's where you are and the clients are happy and the firm is still growing and the profits are good. And even normal market trajectory means this thing will probably be almost 4x the size in 15 years just from steady referral organic growth in markets. Like when it's that good and it could 4x by the time you're retiring in 15 years, like why would you do a bunch of new different things? Absolutely. And really, it- totally understandable, except you're 28 and have a 40 year time horizon. And I'm like, yeah, I want to do some things. Exactly. If I'm doing even 15 years from now what I'm doing now, I'm going to be bored. <laughs> like it's just not right. It's just not fulfilling for me at that point. That's a problem of alignment of interests. Right? Exactly. Just fundamental mismatch of time horizon. Exactly. Some of the changes that we made with those conversations where I expressed all this maybe not quite as as clearly at the time but but we talked through as much as we could. And so one shift that we made is I completely took over the marketing. The I actually became the manager for every other uh, member of the firm from both offices, except for the two senior owners, and just c- really took over the planning committee that we had and tried to think outside the box on things like that. I took on a lot, and I asked for all of it. And unfortunately, it still didn't work for me because I personally felt that at any time my big ideas could get squashed (laughs) by the senior owners, which was true. I still had to report to somebody and that, that was, I, I couldn't work under that structure. Because in the purest sense and not stereotyping, but like typical entrepreneurism, like you literally just had to be your own boss and deal with all the consequences of your own decisions. But Absolutely. You, you just had to be your own boss. I At this point, and, and especially because I have been, I'm pretty much unemployable <laughs> because I don't think I could go back to that and do as good of a job. And it's just a personality thing. So they're trying to make changes. You're saying like, I need to drive more of this. I've got these ideas. So they try to put you in that position. Okay, Ben, you take over the marketing. Everyone will report to you. I think of that as like you're functionally becoming like the managing director of the firm. And it's still not enough. Right. And it's still not enough. And I would say part of it too is uh, when you have a firm that's working really well, you are you have 15 people working there. The People buy into a culture and... I was trying to create havoc. I was trying to change the culture completely. And so that's part of the problem too, was I don't think I was a good cultural fit long-term and the people I was trying to lead at that point fit better with the way things were, not where I was trying to take it. 
So summer of 2019, I actually was at a, a peer group meeting with other younger advisors that are in the Midwest, and, and we'd been in the group for 10 years. And I was just, just expressing my frustrations and realized in that conversation, I realized it myself that they're really, without causing a lot of changes that on paper were really bad, like a lot of turno- staff turnover and things like that, it wasn't ever going to work. Uh, I realized I needed I needed to leave. And so as soon as I realized that, I, I called up the two senior owners and let them know that I don't have a plan yet. I don't know when it's going to be, but we need to start thinking about it because this is not my long-term plan. And I don't want you to make decisions planning for me to be here when I'm not going to. How did that call in news go? Because I certainly know advisors that are terrified to make that call. What if I tell them, they say, fine, then you're out and they fire me or transition faster than I was expecting, or I'm going to blow up a relationship. I'm fascinated that that was the first and immediate go-to conversation for you. Yeah, for sure. I felt that we had good conversations year before. I felt like we had made it really clear that if this didn't work, that was going to be the end result. I do, looking back, I think they were very surprised that I had made that decision. I think that I should have had given more opportunity to say this, guys, this really isn't working for me. And instead of keeping it to myself, um, because I did at that point, I felt like I'd already had the conversation and let's just see if this works or I don't want to keep trying to force this to happen if it's not a good fit. Um, I well, had already had- from their end, they're like, Ben, you came to us and said you wanted all this additional like ability to drive things. We literally gave you the marketing and made you managing partner and you're still leaving. Correct. And that honestly was pretty much the reaction. <laughs> and, and so I had our, I already had talked to an attorney the year before just to understand my contracts. And I knew I wasn't going to be fired <laughs> on the spot or anything like that. And that we would still, there would be some negotiations. I was still the only advisor for the 80 clients in the Illinois office. They didn't know anybody else at that point. And I wasn't sure how it was all going to shake out, but I also knew enough to say I have some protections that we will work this out. And having a long-term relationship helped. And we ultimately wanted to get to something that worked for everybody. Obviously, everyone's going to have their own interests first, but we had a rela- we have a relationship that's able to work through things and not be combative and just use attorney going back and forth. Was there anything they could have done? What would it have taken for you to actually stay? I thought there was something at the time. Looking back, I don't believe there it was ever going to be a long-term fit. And I say that saying if I had uh, experience with a different firm before, had worked somewhere else, and I was looking where to work, if I was not going to start my own, but I was going to go join another firm with the rest of the future kind of laid out the way that it could have been, I don't think that is where I would have worked. And it's nothing against the firm. It's a cultural fit and it's a goals fit and time horizon and all of those things. I really don't believe there's anything that could have kept me there. What I wish would have happened is that we would have had more 
and and really me mostly more self-awareness and transparent conversations before I even became an owner would have made things a lot less messy uh, to, to exit. So then how do you go about starting to unwind this? Mm-hmm. You're now what? You're like two years past having inked the original partnership? Yes. <laughs> yes. It's a pretty quick turnaround there. And so we worked through what worked, what we thought would work. And I was able to negotiate to bring 16 clients with me and, and pay for them. And I still had a loan due to the senior owners. And so that was obviously included. And I did have, as you would expect, non-solicitation, non-competes, all, the, all those things. And so we had to work through all that. I continued working through the end of the year. So this was June of 2019 that I told them. And, and I worked through the end of the year and through the, I was paid in the part of the negotiation is I helped the rest of the clients transition to their new advisors, other advisors, junior advisors that were in the firm that were in another office and, and helped. I went to meetings with all of them, introduced them, talked about our relationship and why I thought that was a good fit. I actually helped choose each client, which advisor they were going to work with for the ones that I was not able to bring with me. So I want to understand a little bit more just the, like the equity on wine. Cause as you noted, like you bought in with a seller finance note from the firm. So like you're trying to exit and like good news, you still have shares, bad news, you have a, a big old loan. Like I'm just wondering what the arrangement was. Did you, were you selling the shares back and they were actually appreciated a little bit and you could use the the value of the growth to pay off the loan? Was it like, I'll give you back the shares, you undo my loan and we're just like resetting back to where we were? How, like how did you actually do the unwind here. Yeah. So I don't want to go too much into the details there, but what I will say is I did not get any of the appreciation that had occurred over that time that I'd been an owner. And part of that was in the negotiation, allowing me to purchase clients and leave at that point. That was the trade-off. I couldn't have taken anybody. We narrowed down to that number. I was willing to do a lot more if it made sense, but just the way the numbers worked and through our negotiations, that's what we ended up with. It sounds like on on the whole, like this this did not work out the best financially for you for having been in as a partner for two years and then needing to unwind. Understandably, that's not an ideal situation. No, definitely took a step back and through the conversation, I felt that I was I'm the one breaking us up. <laughs> I'm the one that went into this, felt a lot of responsibility for that. And also knowing that the reason I was doing it was not for financial reasons. So I'm not going to let that be the main factor as we negotiate through. Mm. I would rather have the freedom to do what I want to do and give up some money to do it. Fair enough. If you've got the confidence that I can go entrepreneur my way to the thing I'm going to build in the future anyways, like I don't have to maximize the dollar here. Like I got literally decades to build the thing that's going to come next. I just want the freedom and autonomy to build the thing that comes next. Exactly. Exactly. I wanted to be able to open an office nearby, not to go after the same clients, but geographically, how non-competes and non-solicitations work. I want to be able to do that. (laughs) Right. Because I live there. You'd set your roots there. You, yep. Yeah. I, I don't want to have to move my family to relaunch my firm. Exactly. All that. I looked at the traditional kind of RA channels of lenders and given the amount of revenue that I was purchasing, none were willing to take the chance. 
because it was too small of a revenue to start with. And so that's where Gary comes back in to the story and, and really what you started with at the beginning. Because I was at lunch with Gary and we're deep in negotiations on what to do. And I was just asking him for advice. And he, out of the blue, said, I could lend you some money or even buy in if you're selling equity. (laughs) I had never thought about that before. And as I thought about it, I I said, I don't want to owe Gary money. I don't want to take on that debt. If I'm going to owe money to somebody, it's going to be a bank. (laughs) I just don't for philosophical reasons at that point. And so I said, Gary, maybe we could do something equity wise. And I went through and using that 16 clients and the revenue that they were bringing did a 10-year discounted cash flow projection. And and I was planning on being a high efficiency solo and never have an employee. And honestly, I was just burnt out at that time. And so looking at high profit margins and capping my salary at a certain percentage so that he would actually get paid something and separate owner's comp versus the advisor comp and, and all those different pieces. And so Gary bought in. And to raise a little bit more money, I went to a friend that I'd known since we were six months old in daycare. And he's best man in my wedding. And I told him what I was doing and he bought in as well. So they each bought 12.5%. So when I launched, I owned 75% of my company and they each owned 125 So I'm just trying to visualize a little bit. So 16 clients that are transitioning, are we talking about tens of thousands of dollars of revenue? Is this like one or 200,000? Let's assume it's 10,000 each, 160,000 of revenue. Okay. So you run a, you run a 10 year projection on this $160,000 of cash flow of gross revenue growing at some percentage. There's an expense structure on this. There's a salary on top of it. You can still run a pretty good profitability off of it. So this is probably tens of thousands of dollars a year of of projected profits. So you run out 10 years of projected profits with growth, put a discount rate on it coming back and get to some like principal value of the business today with these seated with these 16 clients. And then they bought 12.5% each of that number. That was their cash buy-in. To do the exactly, deal. exactly. They asked plenty of questions, and I gave them multiple different projections of higher growth rate, lower growth rate. Here's the risk that I see as a passive investor. Here's what I, if I'm you, here's the questions I'm going to ask if this is a good deal or not. People that I have relationships with, and so it's not some third party I don't know. I care about my relationship with them, and I think that came through because ultimately they said whatever you think is fair. Your numbers make sense. Your logic makes sense. We trust you. Again, looking back, it's paid off for them, but that's a lot of trust and a lot of money they put in just based on our relationship. And they didn't just buy a percentage of the profits of 16 clients. They bought 12.5% of the business. Correct. It's just the, the business was seeded with 16 clients as you're doing the models and some assumptions about new client growth on top of it. And that's what they were buying into to to determine the valuation. Exactly. And I had two other people from our peer group had launched businesses within a year of me launch or before I launched. And given our relationship in the peer group, they're sharing all their costs and their expectations. And so using, I had good data on real live examples so I could 
use to project out. And I'm presuming just the way it mathed given overall growth aspirations, this gave you enough mon- enough cash to be able to actually do the transaction with the prior firm for the 16 clients that you were buying out. I did have to, I put in some of my own money and I did have to also get a small loan, just a really a personal loan at that point <laughs> to make it work because I couldn't get a, another business loan given we didn't have a business yet. And so that, between all that and, and the equity up front, uh, I was able to write that check that I needed to buy out those clients. And so this was, I think you said this was in 2020? So I launched, Illuminate Wealth Management launched January 1st, 2020, right before COVID. That's nice timing. (laughs) How did that feel when you're launched and transitioning your clients and then the world comes to a screeching halt two and a half months later? Yes, wonderful times. I was keeping costs low at the beginning. And so I had, instead of a rebalancing software, I had uh, each client had a spreadsheet and I could drop in their their Schwab holdings <laughs> into the spreadsheet and do rebalancing as I needed to. And let's just say March, April, May, there's a lot of rebalancing opportunities there that uh-huh. I quickly called up <laughs> and tried to find the the quickest way I could get onboarded with a rebalancing software so I can move a little faster. Things like that, definitely you just hold on and do the best you can as quickly as you can through that process. One nice thing is I had planned from the beginning that I wanted a, a virtual practice that didn't require an in, in an office. And so I was going to work from home. I had already set the client expectations on that talk. We already had Zoom set up and mm-hmm. clients were used to that. And so there actually were a lot of great things I had already done. Not obviously no one knew this was going to happen. Right. The world was going to shut down, but I was prepared just by luck <laughs> at that point to, to deal with uh, all the restrictions that came in. So what was the, I guess the proverbial tech stack that you launched with? So I d- launched with XY Planning Network and uh, really just used every, <laughs> everything that was offered and, and whatever the cheapest option was <laughs> to start with uh, through XYPN. And so things like Wealthbox and different services, Precise FP, things like that, that either discounts or recommended by somebody else that we could have at that point. Prior firm was using only Schwab as the custodian. And so I was able to just onboard with them and and it made it easy to transition those clients because it was just signing IA authorization forms instead of transferring to a new custodian and things like that. So definitely helped. There's a lot of nice things that were already there. I was already on the investment committee at the old firm and knew how we set up the models and what we're going to do. So just able to start with very similar. And then since then, we've made a lot of changes. So Schwab for the custodian, because you had prior relationship, Wealthbox, because it was in the XYPN stack for CRM. Precise FP for kind of the data gathering stuff. What was planning software and investment tools? So I was very comfortable with Money Guide Pro. So that's what I uh, started with at that time. We have since shifted to Right Capital, but that was what we started with. And then just used. What, what led to that shift? Just like why leaving Money Guide for Right Capital? 
I, I think the user interface for clients and, and onboarding clients and working through with the types of clients that we have, we use a lot of the tools that are built in that clients really enjoy because we, we are getting a lot of younger clients and I think it's more user-friendly at that point. So that's a big part of it. Made sure we had both for a while and I would run plans in both just to make sure I knew the outputs were yeah. what I expected and they were consistent, all that. We used the XYPN Orion services for the portfolio management piece did shift that. And we are now at Tamarack. A part of that's because that's what I was used to before and liked what we had at the old firm. So now how has this played out over the past three years? Like you, you launched with 16 clients and some ambitions to grow, but I think you said also a, a desire to build this more in the vein of a lifestyle practice because you were feeling a little burnt out before. So where is it now? How has that played out? So where we are now, we're at, a, I've got two and a half other people that work for me, part-time CFP. We have about 55 ongoing clients and 100 million AUM just crossed that mark, which was a good goal to have. What's interesting is for the first three months, I was all about the high efficiency solo lifestyle practice. And then I realized I was running from something, not to something. And I was missing having a team to celebrate wins with and, uh, you know, delegate things to each other that use each other's strengths. I have a lot of strengths, but I have a whole lot of weaknesses. So it's nice to have some people on the team that can cover those for you. And so I looked and made a couple really bad hires in 2020 that didn't work out. But again, a lot of my story is about right place, right time and, and kind of luck. I was in Orlando, November of 2020 with the other partner. So Gary, and then David is the other one who's best man at my wedding. He lives in Orlando. And he said, I really think you should meet this friend of mine. Uh, we've worked together on some things. He's thinking about being a career changer, switching to something in personal finance. Why don't you talk to him? Uh, I met him on a Friday, hired him on a Monday, <laughs> and the rest is history. He's my number two guy. And he is everything he is good at everything that I'm not. He is a good balance. He is less of a risk taker, but still willing to deal with my risks <laughs> that I'm willing to take. He is a great balance. I'm the, it, it, we use EOS, the Entrepreneur Operating okay. System, yeah. and I am the quintessential visionary, and he is the quintessential integrator. As we've grown over time, the number one thing we've done is just take advantage of opportunities as they present themselves. And again, less about pursuing, okay, we have to be at this point with this target. For instance, we had several people reach out and they didn't want our full wealth planning, full services ongoing. They wanted to do some projects. So now we have projects and we do, we average about one a month of a project that we'll be working on with a client. And it's a limited scope, start to stop, move on. We have added things like an outsourced CFO service at this point. I've The three people I've hired all have bookkeeping experience and one is an EA. And, and so we're able to do for our business owner clients that have smaller businesses, 500 to 3 million in revenue. We're doing bookkeeping and payroll and and invoicing, and then the tax preparation and tax planning, 
all those different pieces for the business owner and the business. And then also we have them as a personal client as well. And so integrating those two are a big part of it. That just happened because I had a client that was really struggling with their relationship with their CPA. I would ask questions to try to do tax planning. Didn't like the answers I was getting. Didn't feel like it was proactive enough. And so we said, we'll figure out how to do it for you. (laughs) And just took it over. So then help us understand is you're describing a couple of different offerings at this point. So what are the offerings, the services, the pricing for Illuminate Wealth? Our fee schedule has changed over time. Like everybody else, you start too low and I intentionally didn't want to start too low and I still did. And we've increased fees a couple times in the almost four so, years at this point. Where so did now, it start? Where did it start? Where it started was a minimum fee of $3,000 a year and for our full wealth planning. So wealth planning includes includes all the financial planning, investment management. We bill based on net worth, not just AUM. And so it was 60 basis points of net worth was our starting fee with a minimum of 3000 a year. Did have a few people join in. My idea at that point was I want to serve the people that have almost no assets and $300,000 of student loan, but high income. And we can do tax planning and help them with their savings buckets and budgeting, get the right insurance and invest, but not focus on the investment. So that's why the minimum fee and the net worth was there. Raise that minimum after a year to 6,000, still the same 60 basis points on the net worth. We are now at minimum fee of 9,600 and 0.8% of net worth is our fee schedule. And that now also includes uh, tax preparation in your full wealth planning service that we have. All right. So I have a, a couple of questions around this. Net worth, like it's just practically like, how do you calculate that and, and manage the, the billing process? Is that everything? Are you figuring out business values? Are you figuring out like home values or their assets to exclude? Like, how does yeah, this yeah. So we are, work? We are primarily, uh, basically everything is ex- included unless there's a really compl- compelling reason to exclude it. So December 31st of each year is our date that we set the net worth and then set a flat fee based on that that's billed either monthly or quarterly for the next 12 months. And our billing is actually February 1st because we need that month of January <laughs> to uh, get new net worth data. Right. And we would do a net worth update anyway. And so we ask them and we say, okay, home value, here's what Zillow says better than we do. What do you think is fair? (laughs) And whatever they say is what we put in for the outside assets that are harder to calculate. We do have several clients that have stock options. Some are vested, some are not. We're obviously not including unvested, but even the vested ones, we do, given the volatility of the stock, we're putting some discounts in there and obviously putting tax liability or embedded to tax liability on there as well for the net worth. So it's a true fair number. At the end of the day, we're agreeing to what we think is fair with the client and they know that it impacts their fee. So I don't think I have clients that are coming up with really low numbers for their house, <laughs> but if they are, say, do, be it. <laughs> do you have a feeling or concern that there are clients that lowball exclude an asset from their balance sheet. They're like, eh, we got this. We don't really feel like we need advice on it. So we're not going to tell Ben (laughs) so we don't have to get billed on it. One nice thing is, especially doing the tax returns as well, 
it's hard to hide assets because you get tax statements. Now, I'm sure there are something out there somewhere. I've never billed on a crypto balance. I know a lot of my clients had some crypto. Some still do. <laughs> never build on that piece. And I it wasn't a large enough percentage of their net worth that it really mattered. Again, it's more about coming up with something that's fair. You set it for the year. Now, I do lose the quarterly increase if AUM is up, but it'll get caught in the back end. And it also makes our planning a lot smoother as well, because I don't have any volatility in the fees throughout the, the 12 months. And how often in practice do clients have portfolios that you can build this from versus needing to find some other like outside account or place to bill it from? At this point, I, I think 95% of our clients have enough in assets that we can bill from Schwab. And okay. we've just made the decision. You probably could come up with a way to take it out of or a piece of it out of an IRA, but we're taking it all out of a taxable account. Okay. What are the rest of the models? And then I want to understand like what you do for a minimum of $9,600 a year. Occasionally, we'll get a client that just wants investment management. So we just have a tiered schedule starting at 1% AUM for the first million. Not a lot of clients are on that, but it's enough that we have it as an option. We do, like I said, we have a lot of project clients. That started with a minimum fee at $1,800. we have now increased that to $2,400. And it can go up to $15,000, depending on the scope for what we're going to do for that client. And a lot of those are what we call... Uh, transition to retirement clients where or a retirement readiness project is what a lot of people hear. It's $4,800. It's basically all the questions that someone is going to have when they're a year or two from retirement. So they don't want to hand over their assets. They don't want the ongoing tax planning and tax management, all the wealth planning services that we provide. They literally just want to know, I'm planning on retiring. How much can I spend? Do I need to change my allocation? How do I sign up for Medicare? What do I do for Social Security? Is there anything else that I need to do before this happens? And so that's just a $4,800 for our standard retirement readiness project that we'll do. So we've made some standard project models, but we also have people that say, I got a lot of student loan debt and I don't know, do I save or, or do I pay off the student loans? So that's where the 2400 would come in. And so how do you price and layer that on by the so time the, you're doing, that's the bookkeeping and payroll and invoicing work for small business owners? Yes. So we have a fee, again, based on complexity. How, do we have to recreate the books? Right now, for instance, we have two, two new OCFO clients that we redoing their 2022 books <laughs> and they just were really messy and they filed tax returns and shouldn't have, but they had to. Uh -huh. And that's got a different upfront fee, but it's really just based on scope and how much work we're really going to go into on that. It's anywhere from $6,000 a year to $36,000 a year, depending on the situation. What we want to do, and this is both the OCFO and the wealth planning clients, I want as much included as possible. So they're not paying something else. So for instance, we're taking the payroll processing expense and paying for the software. We're not billing that to the client as well. We're, we're filing the taxes, obviously, but all of the different software pieces that need to have 
it's just included in our fee. You're not paying a, a separate fee for that. And so then for the the core offering, this wealth planning offering, 80 basis points on net worth, just what do you do for clients <laughs> uh, for this fee that's beyond an AUM fee? So we're doing an investment management that's maybe 10% of my time and what we're doing multiple tax projections. We do a cash flow projection at the beginning of every year for all the clients. We have a, a standard client calendar that basically checks every box. It's, okay, send us your auto and homeowners insurance, and we're going to go work with outside brokers to price it out and see if this makes sense. We're going to do that work. I'm not paid, obviously, fee only. We're not paid on any products, but let's price it out. Let's make sure you have the right policy. Same with signing up for supplemental insurance, or you need health insurance through the marketplace, help with the right partners and use. Really, as I tell people, our projects are, if we're going to make recommendations, you're going to do it yourself. Our wealth planning is we're doing as much as possible for you. So we have been doing tax returns for a couple of years, except for We've actually never signed the return. I just now have someone on my team who's an EA. What we've done instead is pay the fee to one of three different CPAs, gathered all the documents, didn't have them fill anything out. We already needed it for a tax projection. So I'm sending that to the CPA, answering the questions that they would have, making sure we approve the return before the client sees it. Client's going to get the return. We pay the fee to the CPA. That's how we've handled the wealth planning on the tax prep. Now for most of our clients will be doing it internally, which from our process is almost the same as what we were doing anyway. <laughs> now we're just putting the data in the software because we already were comparing with our projection and gathering all the data through that process. So everything that you can think of that money touches is really in our client calendar. But I look at the calendar as the bare minimum to check the box so we've done what we need to do so that we actually have time to do all the other things that matter. And so I'll give you a a quick example of just a couple things that have come up in the last year that's outside of our normal scope that you would expect from a financial planner, but our, our process. So we have a client, for instance, that before they worked with us had gotten the letter that they were turning 70 for Social Security. And if you sign up, you can get a lump sum if you go back six months and really start it as of 69 and six months. And so he did that and woke up the next day and said, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Worked through the process. When he became a client, that wasn't a primary thing, but they lost the check during COVID and things like that. We reached out to the congressional offices and wrote letters and ultimately got it resolved after nine months of working on it. Is outside of a typical scope, but we want to be efficient with everything else so that I can step in when those sort of things happen. So can you describe for us a little more just what's on this client calendar? What do you have on your annual service calendar? So our annual service calendar, again, it's more of a guideline than anything else, but it separates into a monthly schedule. So we're sending an email to every client at the beginning of the month, say on our client calendar for January, we're going to have you update your risk tolerance. Here's a link to our risk tolerance uh, questionnaire, and we're going to be starting your cash flow projections. Here's the information that we need from you. February, we're delivering the cash flow projections, and we're 
talking about QCDs or RMDs and making sure that the timing's going to work. March is the tax prep. March and April is tax preparation. And May, June, July, and August are full-blown retirement projections, but we also have other things in there. So if it applies, so social security timing and Medicare reviews, I don't know about you, but a lot of clients don't want to talk to me in the summer. So we just lump all some of these things in, but at least we have it, right? We know it's there. The property and casualty review is in June. And then obviously we have estimated tax payments depending on the month that we have here. July, estate planning beneficiary reviews. August is life, disability, long-term care reviews, and then college funding. Then we get to the end of the year, Roth conversions. If we haven't already covered it earlier in the year, open enrollment, send us all your open enrollment information so we can analyze it all and and give you recommendations on what you need to be doing. And then finalize at the end of the year, all the things we need to get done for that December 31st deadline. And then you start over again with update net worth statement January and all those other pieces. And we do deliver at the end of the year a kind of a year overview. We have a a timeline at the top. And so it's showing every meeting we had and all the just really that is so we can remind them how much we did for them. That's what the top is. The rest of it, honestly, is taking everything from the client calendar, all those different things that I mentioned, and they have a section. And it's saying, is this in good standing or not? Because obviously, a client calendar is great if clients respond proactively and and immediately when you send them an email. But there are things that we should have done in March that were not as urgent in the client's mind, and they're still not done. And so it's marked yellow or red, depending on how urgent it actually is, and a reminder in our action of you really... We need to do this quickly. Make sure you're getting this us this information. So it's a combination of things. It also has a link to all of our blog posts and investment. We give out monthly investment, a monthly investment newsletter, and then quarterly I will record an investment video talking about what's happened in the market and things, and so clients get access to that. So out of curious, is there a like a template that you can share with folks? Like this, I'm trying to visualize this. I get the feeling this is powerful to look at visually. Is there a like a templated version you'd be willing to share with folks who are listening just to try to visualize what the end of year checklist of the service calendar looks like? For sure. Yeah. I'll share both the client services calendar and then also the year end checklist, which if you look awesome. at the two, you'll see that they definitely yeah. work together. <laughs> All right. Awesome. So uh, for folks who are listening, this is uh, episode 373. So if you just go to kitsis.com slash 373, We'll have links out for Ben's client service calendar and then the the end of year checklist that they're using to report all of it back to clients. Thank you. Ben. As I said earlier, I, I like to change things. So there's no promise that a oh, year yeah, from now we're using it, the same thing. <laughs> it, may may, it may or may not be different by the time uh, when this episode airs because we record a little right. in advance. Understood. <laughs> so Ben, as you look back on this journey, what's surprised you the most about building an advisory business? Yeah, I think... The biggest, I had that transition of time of going from wanting to be a solo to bringing new people on. And I've got a 50% success rate on hiring people that haven't worked out. But it's not really a surprise. But what's shifted is as building the business, it's almost like I forgot at the beginning or as I was burnt out at the end of how much joy I get out of serving clients and delighting them. And I I think delight's probably a good word of knowing that a client's not worrying about 
they're not worrying about money. That's my job is you're going to be okay. Don't worry about money. Get them to that point so that as we tell clients all the time, money is just a tool to help you reach your goals and dreams. It's not the, it's not the end all be all. It doesn't actually matter if you don't use it effectively and use it correctly. And so as we're able to get deeper with clients, get a better relationship, it's been great to have that relationship and see the success for clients. And I know that's why a lot of people got into business. I lucked into the business and kind of backed into it. And so this has been really refreshing to see as we're building this, just see those successes. And obviously we've had some failures and things like that. But when I get to the end of my life, at the end of my career, I won't care about how much money I made or how large Illuminate. I'll remember those moments of helping clients. And that's been the the best success that I've had up to this point. I've got an awesome team. And I guess I'll share one more quick thing here, just because we did talk about this before and set the stage in September of 2023, I the business had grown. I had the opportunity to hire a superstar <laughs> to join our team. I had talked to him for 18 months and just said, hey, I, I can't hire you. I can't bring you on board yet. The, the math doesn't work. I also, at that point, had accumulated some personal debt, which happens when you start with a much lower revenue and have to... Yep. You want to continue to grow. And as I say, my wife's retired. She was a biomedical engineer, but she stays home with our kids. And I told her when I launched, I wasn't, you don't have to go back to work. I'll figure out how to make this work. And and she supported me in that. And so through that, the debts I took on originally, I decided that I don't want to worry about payroll or cash flow. I want to pursue the future we see for our clients. I want to keep pushing the envelope of what else can we do. And so I reached out to a group of family and friends, people that I knew really well, and offered up some equity, sold some myself. And we also created new shares so that the business would have some cash. I'd be able to pay off basically all the debts except for my mortgage and helps me sleep better at night, helps me focus on building the business, not taking care of myself and gives the opportunity for future people who are invested in a relationship with me that they now get invested into the business that I think about all the time. And so we have 11 new owners now. Gary also bought in some more at this point. All those other owners are less than 5%. I sold about 10% of what I had. And so I'm under 65% now because we did also have some dilution with new shares. But we are we now have 13 passive owners and then me okay and so, as i as i told them at the beginning when we offered it up same process discounted cash flow 10 year projection i did build in a essentially a call option that at the any time after the 10 year mark i can we can buy back shares at a formula based on that revenue and and profits at that point that was the protection of what if we get really big and need to bring in other owners or internal succession, things like that? I wanted some mechanism to get some of those shares back, but still they'd be paid for the growth. But I also said very clearly, our operating agreement essentially gives me full control. So I will take your ideas and I'll listen to them, but I don't have to follow them. And so you shouldn't go into this expecting you have any say. And I said that kind of tongue in cheek. So having having learned that lesson in the past exactly. from the other end, like, 
I'm giving you ownership, not management decisions. 100%. (laughs) I value your input because you're smart people. I'm not committing to listen to you. Exactly. (laughs) So learning from the past and setting very clear expectations and they still bought in and we actually were oversubscribed and had to tell people, you can't, I don't want to sell that much. You need to reduce your, (laughs) how much you're buying, which was nice. And then just as the business generates profits, I guess you've got some agreement that you set around what a quote unquote reasonable salary is for yourself. Cause now you really have to get clear about what's salary in the business versus profit distributions because you get your salary, but they get a third of the profits. Exactly. It's and it's actually the same formula I had from the beginning of of per, a certain percent of revenue up to a certain point and then it's tiered from there for a lower percentage above certain levels so that it's very clear what's salary and what's profit. So, what was the low point for you? I think there are a couple of low points. One definitely was when I realized that I wouldn't be happy staying at my old firm. Um, that was, I remember telling my attorney when I, I bought in, I, I, he talked about, okay, maybe we should talk about how you would exit. And I said, well, I'm never going to leave. I don't need to worry about that. <laughs> and, and a couple of years later, I did. And so it was, it was painful. I went, I actually, January 2020, I got a therapist because I had this grief of losing the relationships that I had for 13 years and just the way that it was, I wasn't worried about the future. I was just grieving the past. And so that was probably my lowest point at that point. And then also, honestly, from the business perspective, since we've launched, there hasn't been a lot of low points. There's things on paper that look really bad, but I have enough confidence in the future and myself and and taking a long enough view that we've been able to weather through a lot of a lot of the things that every business goes through. I know it's hard. It's always going to be hard. And so with that perspective, honestly from the illuminate wealth management perspective, we haven't had a whole lot of low points. I get very upset if we lose a client. It doesn't happen often. <laughs> That's probably the lowest points that I have at this point. So what other advice would you go back and give you from 10 to 15 years ago when you were still like in the Gary training learning phase? Number one, I wish I didn't have the imposter syndrome. I don't know how to protect people from having that. But if what I would tell, what what I would say is whether they're right or not, if you look throughout my history, someone has taken the time to invest their time and faith in me. And so what I would say is, whether they're right or not, they believe in you. So why don't you believe in yourself a little bit and also not be afraid to ask the questions that you are afraid to ask. They're, they obviously care. So go ahead and ask. What's the worst that can happen? You're not going to burst a bubble on what they think of you because you can't hide yourself for that long. It's not like I, it's not that I pulled you know the wool over their eyes for 13 years. There obviously was something there that they saw and be vulnerable Mm -hmm. earlier is what I would have done and and it would have come to light a lot of things. Any other advice you would give younger or newer advisors coming into the profession and getting started? So it's been very valuable to me for 
now more than a decade to be in a peer group with other like-minded younger advisors. I'm the youngest, Mm. but I think the age difference between the six of us is four or five years. And it's really great to have someone to turn to and say, is this normal? Is this what you're experiencing? And be open and transparent. And, And I will tell you, we are, we were transparent from day one in our peer group. The first meeting, the first conversation, someone asked, okay, if we're, we said to be open and honest, what does everyone make? First thing we talked about was compensation. And it was more of we were younger junior advisors. We didn't have access to all the benchmarking studies. We didn't know if it was fair or not. And it doesn't matter who was high and low. Having a forum of people that we've now built personal relationships with, all are doing really well and, and their careers have grown over time. And you can pull things from what's been successful and what hasn't worked and learn right. from each other. That's been the probably my the most valuable thing that I've experienced. The other thing I would say is I wouldn't be where I am without the mentorship of, of both the founder of my former firm and then Gary. Finding a mentor, whether it's in your firm or not, is invaluable as you're going through this and, and learning so how did I was going to how did you find these people? I know how you found them because it was like founder of prior firm and Gary and his role. But how did you find the peer group, the study group? So we were at a NAPFA conference actually at the NAPFA Genesis Under Thirty Three group and just at a networking social event and started talking to people and I connected with a few and we stayed in contact and just decided after networking you know what, let's make this official. Let's set up recurring meetings. For a while there, we were having monthly calls, hour at a time, talking through different things. We did two in-person meetings a year. We set the the stage on what it needed to look like. Now everyone in the group is an owner of their business and time is a lot less plentiful than it used to be. So we've narrowed down to one in-person meeting a year, but we still communicate regularly. And we'll send everything as small as Hey, I've got this tax, unique tax situation. Uh, here's how I'm going to handle it. How do you guys handle this? And just to have someone outside who doesn't know all the history they can jump in on. And then also when you're at your low points and you're struggling with what do I do next, they know you really well. And so it's formed through the networking, but then it builds over the years together. So as we wrap up, this is a, podcast about success. And just one of the themes that comes up is the word success means different things to different people, right? It even changes for us sometimes as we go through, you went from lifestyle practice focus to evolving a bigger business. And so as, as you're now building this successful business and already cresting a hundred million dollars under management and, and growing well, the business is in a great place. How do you define success for yourself at this point? So success at this point is really measured by both the impact for clients, that's the number one focus, but also creating a space for people who are like me just 15 years ago (laughs) to step in and have a, a safe space to grow and develop and be in a position that they can be the best that they can. We have an awesome team who are all actually career changers, and that's interesting, but they're learning So they're not as young as I was when they started, but they're learning the industry with fresh set of eyes and helping give them space to make mistakes, but maybe not quite that same trade error mistake that I made (laughs) and, and continue to grow and develop that 
if I'm, if it's 10 years from now, success is going to be the number of clients we've impacted and seeing the fruits of them growing, whether it's under our umbrella or not, if it's better for them to leave, I want them to go launch their own business and do what they want to do. That's the focus right now. And I'm having a great time. Very cool. Very cool. Well, thank you so much, Ben, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. This is great. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the member section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.